We've been working our way through uh, the book of Judges and one of the things that really stands out is uh, how corrupted the Israelites are. Um, Even the judges, the deliverers that God chooses to rescue the Israelites from their enemies, these people are often terribly flawed and their flaws cause all sorts of problems. And of course... That's what is going to happen. So this, this, I, I don't know about you, but I've I've found this such a contrast to the children's book versions of Judges, right? Like, yeah, the the they they the children's book versions of Judges often try to minimise or ignore the sin of Judges. They make the deliverers, the Judges, heroes. But it's not just children's books that do that. Adult uh, Bible studies do too. If you Google Jephthah, um, you'll find that a lot of people bend over backwards to try to understand the judges as somehow heroes, essentially good people. And, and, and it's actually missing the whole point of judges. Um, um, the point of judges, of course is that nothing good can come of human freedom when it's exercised apart from God. And uh, this confusion over the source of evil in our society, it's actually still with us today. You might have heard about a school shooting in the last few days in the USA. Uh, the reaction to this was was pretty much the same as it always is in the USA, which is to say partisan and ineffectual. So Democrat Chris Murphy had this to say. I've got a video clip here. Hopefully it works. This only happens in this country and nowhere else. Nowhere else do little kids go to school thinking that they might be shot that day. Nowhere else do parents have to talk to their kids, as I have had to do, about why they got locked into a bathroom and told to be quiet for five minutes just in case a bad man entered that building. Nowhere else does that happen except here in the United States of America, and it is a choice. It is our choice to let it continue. So I'd say he's sort of right about some of those things and wrong about some of them. Australian schools, for example, have lockdown protocols. So people explain to kids in Australian schools why they have to lock themselves in a room, under a desk or whatever. <clears throat> and we do that despite our low number of shootings. This, this map actually shows the number of shootings uh, this year. Um, and you can see that uh, blue, that sort of blue colour means zero. So that's Australia. Australia has zero. Um, but these other colours... Uh, more than zero. So more than zero, more than zero, more than zero, more than zero, and a lot more than zero. <laughs> so the US is pretty shockingly high, 288 deaths this year so far. Next worst is Mexico, just to its south, which has eight deaths this year. So yes, the US is far and away the leader in school deaths, school shooting deaths, 388, Uh, sorry, 288 this year. 
It has a large population, but it doesn't have a larger population than, say, China. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mexico has a lot less. Yeah, so does Japan, yeah, yeah. Um, but we're not, yeah, let's not talk about stabbings. <laughs> Senator Murphy points out that this is our choice to let it continue, and he is, I think, correct in this. But I wonder if he understands what particular choices are letting it continue. One of my Christian and gun-loving friends in America, yes, they can be both a friend and love guns, um, posted this photo with the caption from someone else. It was, you know, uh, posting someone else's thing. My daughter attends MSA in Palmetto, Florida, This is who stands at our one entry to the school all day. Retired combat veteran, trained to head straight for gunfire, who has survived being shot at in intense situations. You may not like it, but I promise today, when I drop her off, I have a tad bit more reassurance knowing her completely gated, guarded school has him. We don't need to debate. So that's that's the other perspective from Senator Chris Murphy. <laughs> now, now I'm, I'm not sure that this was the choice that Senator Murphy was actually talking about. Yeah, some of them can't even lock their back doors. They can't even afford to lock their back doors. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, this isn't the choice I would personally make <laughs> for my school. Um, but, but this is a choice that a lot of Americans advocate. A lot of Americans. Now, here's a map of the world gun ownership. The USA, again, is the leader, but not as much as it was the leader in deaths, uh, school shooting deaths. Uh, There is some correlation, but it's a very loose correlation. For example, the USA has 120 guns per 100 people. Yes, that is more guns than people. Um, (coughs) They also have more cars than people. Um, And they have 288 school shooting deaths. But Canada, for example, just to the north, has 35 guns per 100 people, which is about a third as many guns, and only two school shootings this year, which is 140 times less. So there's a big difference in terms of guns per 100 people per shooting deaths between Canada and the USA. So there's something deeper in US culture that's contributing to this horrible scourge of murders. And yet, neither side, the gun-loving, sometimes Christian, sometimes not, versus the the, um, gun-hating, sometimes Christian, sometimes not, there's, both of those sides don't seem to be prepared to explore that it's about more than just guns. I think there's things they can do about guns that would solve some of the problems, but I don't think it would solve all of the problems. What's our percentage? Our percentage for guns, uh, it's something like um, um, 12 or 13, I think. Per hundred people. But is it predominantly most of those like Tasmanian? Like more rural and 
Yeah, I mean, because of our laws, the gun ownership is is structured quite differently, and also we don't have semi-automatic weapons and assault rifles and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. So, Canada has semi-automatic weapons, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah. <coughs> the um. Do you know what caused? Do you know? Can can you think of any other deep causes, deep deep issues that may be causing this sort of disparity? Or actually, before I say that, sorry, I I jumped I jumped ahead. Um, <coughs> there's actually things. There's actually problems in our nation as well. It's not like the US is uniquely afflicted with problems. Australia has problems of its own. New Zealand, Canada, the US, uh, the UK, etc. We all struggle with different problems. But often we want to avoid addressing those problems. So can you think of any problems, perhaps in our nation, that we desperately want to avoid thinking about, just as the US seems to want to avoid thinking about what's really causing these um these shootings, Brad. Uh, substantial missed opportunities to use edifying communication. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Brad. Um, I don't know if it's like a, a current statistic, but I know it used to be we used to have a higher rate of things like drink driving and accidents from that compared to a lot of other countries in the world. I don't know if that statistic's still accurate. But I know not too long ago, like we're much higher than a lot of other places in the world. Yeah. But that comes off when we have drinking culture and stuff like that. Yeah. We still have huge problems with binge drinking and the impacts of that. Yeah. All those sorts of things. Yeah. Drugs. Yeah. People don't want to talk about the causes of the problems of drugs. They just want to talk about the drugs. Yeah. Yeah. The number of women who died from domestic violence mm. um, is quite big in our society and also our rates of teenage suicide. Homelessness is a really big one because in Australia, compared to a lot of other places in the world, um, our homeless um, rates are quite high, but a lot of them like hide, like they're not as mm. open. Like obviously we do see a lot of homeless people still on the street, especially in cities like Melbourne and Sydney. But compared to a lot of other places in the world, a lot of our homeless people aren't just sort of out and about. So you don't yeah. see them as much. So it's uh, something that's easier to avoid and sort of yeah. ignore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Bullying. Yeah. And what's causing that? Yeah. Yeah. The um, there was yeah, the Australian, the Weekend Australian had a very disturbing front page article about um, sec, um, domestic violence in in Aboriginal communities in Yuendumu in particular, and that's something that we just don't like talking about. So it was very unusual for it to be. Um, a headline. A headline, yeah. It's actually a headline because we don't talk about yeah. it. So, Americanisation of Australian culture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we don't like to talk about that, do we? I think with domestic violence, too, um, when it's against men. Yes. Yeah. And also same sex. Yeah. Yeah. It's not discussed at all. Yeah. Yes, there's an interesting 
lately when they've been advertising, not advertising, the news reports do a domestic violence one, there's always a, there's a comment at the end if you get um, DB. If you DB connect to it. And they've changed it subtly. It used to be for women, who, if, if you're a woman expecting domestic violence, then they give the numbers for that. And then they said, if you're a man thinking that you might be a perpetrator, and they did that for a while. And yeah. then it's switched now that are a victim of domestic violence or think you will be able to. They finally yeah. actually slotted that in that men can be victims of domestic violence. Yeah. <laughs> it took a while though, it took about yeah. a couple of months of that. It's funny, they then still haven't got the thing of women uh, victims but also perpetrators. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 For help because, you know, I think. Which one for this? Which two for this? <laughs> yeah, but I think they should also look at um, emotional abuse. Yeah. 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 As it's now starting to be recognised, but it's so hard to regulate. Um, the other thing I was just thinking of something that it, not violence in our youth is mm. increasing. Yeah, violence. and it's it's frightening, isn't it? Yeah, the, the um, to control because you can get a knife anywhere. Like, yeah, home, supermarket, they don't like that's not mm-hmm. something that's really you can't regulate it. Yeah, no. yeah. you go to show a license if you buy a, a bamboo knife from the supermarket. Yeah, really? Yeah, <laughs> but you can buy a kitchen knife and no problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you go to Woolies now, they all package up in plastic, so so there's there's lots of deep problems that we have in our societies and often we don't want to think about them we don't we don't want to dig deep down into the causes right it's just too uncomfortable and often our the structures in our society can't help us because they're part of the problem Fortunately, once in a while, people do realise that things have gone wrong and they figure out what's gone wrong. In Judges so far, the Israelites have, have not done this. They've, they've just been begging God to help them. So, so something goes wrong, they get oppressed and they just say, oh, please God, come and help us. They don't try to understand why things have gone wrong or why they're being oppressed. They completely ignore any of their own contributions to the problem. But now in chapter 10, we finally read something different. Before long, the Israelites began disobeying the Lord by worshipping Baal, Astarte, and the gods from Syria, Sidon, sorry, Sidon, Moab, Amnon, and Philistia. So the author of Judges always knows what the Israelites are doing wrong. <coughs> The Lord was angry at Israel and decided to let Philistia and Ammon conquer them. So the same year that Jair died, Jair was one of the judges, who's just mentioned briefly, Israel's army was crushed by these two nations. For 18 years, Ammon was cruel to the Israelites, who lived in Gilead, the region east of the Jordan River that had once belonged to the Ammonites. To the Amorites, rather. Got to get these things right. <laughs> or, yeah, am I right? The <laughs> sorry, just couldn't resist it. Then, <laughs> then the Ammonites began crossing the Jordan and attacking the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. So not only have they they been con- uh, 
dominating at, um, Gilead on the east of the Jordan, but now they're crossing the Jordan. Life was miserable for the Israelites. Yeah, oh, sorry. <clears throat> life was miserable for the Israelites. They begged the Lord for help and confessed. We were unfaithful to you, our Lord. We stopped worshipping you and started worshipping idols of Baal. Wow. Then the Israelites got rid of the idols of the foreign gods and they began worshipping only the Lord. Finally, there came a time when the Lord could no longer stand to see them suffer. This sounds hopeful, right? The Israelites have confessed that they've abandoned God and indulged in idolatry and they've, they've got rid of their idols. So, so this is going to be a great story about a really upright judge who does everything right, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, sadly no. <laughs> Instead, we find the Israelites, at least those east of the Jordan in Gilead, doing things without consulting God at all. Same as usual. The rulers of Ammon called their soldiers together and led them to Gilead where they set up camp. The Israelites gathered at Mizpah and set up camp there. The leaders of Gilead asked each other, who can lead an attack on the Ammonites? So they're not saying, you know, what is God going to do? They're saying, which of us can attack, can be a leader? Then they agreed. If we can find someone who can lead the attack, we'll make him the ruler of Gilead. If we can find someone. Sounds pretty desperate, doesn't it? But that's what happens when you abandon God. You get into a desperate situation. And you eventually, you'll settle for rescue from anyone, no matter what the cost, even making them your ruler. The story that follows has uh, that follows this. They find this this guy Jephthah, and they have this lengthy haggling session with Jephthah. Um, and Jephthah was living as a bandit after being kicked out of his family because his mother was a prostitute. Sounds good so far, right? <coughs> Eventually, Jephthah struck a bargain to be their ruler in return for leading them into battle, which is what they originally said, but they, even they were smart enough not to offer that up front, especially to a bandit. Jephthah started his rule with an even lengthier negotiation, and I'm not going to read all this stuff, with the Ammonites. And that negotiation ended this way. But the king of Ammon paid no attention to Jephthah's message. And then the Lord's spirit took control of Jephthah. And Jephthah went through Gilead and Manasseh, raising an army. Finally, he arrived at Mizpah in Gilead, where he promised the Lord, if you will let me defeat the Ammonites and come home safely, I will sacrifice to you whoever comes out to meet me first. From Mizpah, Jephthah attacked the Ammonites and the Lord helped him defeat them. Jephthah and his army destroyed the, 22 town, the 20 towns between Aroah and Minnath and others as far as abel Keramim. After that, the Ammonites could not invade Israel anymore. So there's some 
startling things about this passage. First, all of that talk that Jephthah went on about, which I've spared you from, but I suggest you read it. It's in Judges 11. Have a look at it. It led nowhere, right? There was still a brutal battle. But when you read the negotiations in their historical context, what you'll find is that Jephthah wasn't actually being diplomatic. He wasn't actually um, trying to negotiate. Rather, he seems to have been baiting the Ammonites. He exaggerated the length of time that Israel had inhabited the land because the Ammonites were claiming that the land belonged to them. And he said, no, we've been here 300 years. He played down the Ammonites' claim on the land and he even mixed up their god with the god of Moab, which is pretty insulting back then. It actually reminds me of the way that, that in our uh, culture wars today, we, we don't just talk past each other, we actually try to push each other's buttons. We're not trying to communicate, we're just trying to wind the other side up often. And of course that never ends well. The second thing is that God's spirit did take control of Jephthah, despite Jephthah's shady past and his belligerent present. Yet again we see God using a deeply flawed person for his purposes. And third, despite the presence of God's spirit, Jephthah, like Gideon, can't quite bring himself to trust God. And so he strikes a bargain with God. This ominous bargain is completely at odds with what we've seen so far of God's character, right? The CEV translation we're using uses this pronoun, whoever. We can't see it there. Oh, sorry. It uses the pronoun whoever, um, which makes clear that Jephthah was expecting a person to come out of his house, not an animal or a thing. Indeed, the very next words describe the terrible outcome of this vow. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, the first one to meet him was his daughter. She was playing a tambourine and dancing to celebrate his victory and she was his only child. Oh, Jephthah cried. Then he tore his clothes in sorrow and said to his daughter, I made a sacred promise to the Lord and I must keep it. Your coming out to meet me has broken my heart. Father, she said, you made a sacred promise to the Lord and he let you defeat the Ammonites. Now you must do what you promised, even if it means I must die. But first, please let me spend two months wandering in the hill country with my friends. We will cry together because I can never get married and have children. That's the purpose of, of being a woman, by the way, in that culture. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you may have two months, Jephthah said. She and some other girls left and for two months they wandered in the hill country crying because she could never get married and have children. Then she went back to her father. He did what he had promised. 
and she never got married. That's why for every year, Israelite girls walk around for four days weeping for Jephthah's daughter. Ah, what a terrible story. Now, it's, it's tempting to see Jephthah's faithfulness to his vow as courage and integrity. In fact, if you Google Jephthah, that's what articles, a number of articles say about this story. What a great guy Jephthah was keeping his promise. But the biblical perspective is that there are more important things than personal courage or integrity, and human life is one of those. Now, from a biblical perspective, the first thing that you think of is that God forbade human sacrifice. In Leviticus, it says it several times. This is one case. Don't sacrifice your children. Indeed, human life is so important that God's law, given to Moses, insists that humans cannot be the payment of a vow. If somebody makes a vow on a person, then it's money that is devoted to God, not the person's life. So we read in Leviticus, in chapter 27, the Lord told Moses to say to the community of Israel, if you ever want to free someone who's been promised to me, you may do so by paying the following amounts, weighed according to the official standards. And then there's a a list, sort of reads like a government list, um, that tells you how much money it costs to redeem uh, one of those particular types of people. So if Jephthah had been faithful to God and he'd wanted to redeem the person that he promised to God, his daughter, his only daughter, (coughs) if he had had that faithfulness to God and understanding of God instead of this twisted integrity, then he could have maintained his vow by taking ten pieces of silver and giving it to God. God doesn't desire human sacrifice. Was it something God asked? Sorry? God didn't ask him to do it. He just made a That's right. That's right. It wasn't a request. That's right. So Jephthah is too proud and too ignorant and too trapped in a society that's lost its way. It's actually a common thing in Canaanite society to sacrifice your children. And it's a common thing to to dedicate a person to uh, sacrifice in order to gain some benefit from the God. But it's not a common thing in Israelite society, in genuine in Israelite society that's following God's law. What did he expect to come out? Like a servant or something? Well, it's... Yeah. He didn't care about the whoever came out, did he? Yeah. It's, <coughs> it's pretty obvious that he wasn't expecting like a chicken or something because what value would that vow have to God? So obviously he was expecting something valuable. So it's all... I, it reads to me like his tearing his clothes and all this is a bit of drama. You know, he's sort of justifying himself. He comes across as a very deceitful, manipulative, yeah, trying to be a hero, trying to have his cake and eat it too sort of guy to me. He sounds like a politician. (laughs) 
but worse than our politicians, much worse. Our politicians don't sacrifice their daughters. Thank God. Um, it's, it's, worth, it's worth comparing Jephthah, I think, with Abraham here because when you think about this, you know, who else has been, a, who else almost sacrificed their only child? Abraham, right? In that case, um, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. So it was a little bit different. But it was actually different in lots of ways. But they were both facing the sacrifice of their only child through whom their family would continue. So how, how did they differ? Let's, let's have a look. Jephthah failed to trust God's promises, which is why he made his bargain. Right? God didn't make the bargain with him. He made the bargain with God because he failed to trust God. And so he felt that he had to get some extra leverage over God. And that's what resulted in the situation. Abraham, in contrast, trusted God's promise. So when God tested Abraham by demanding the sacrifice of his son, Abraham obeyed without question. Huge difference. Jephthah doesn't trust God. Abraham trusts God so much that he trusts him with his own son's life. Jephthah's concern when he saw his daughter and realised that she was the price of his vow was with his own pride and his own loss. He doesn't go, oh, my daughter, this is so tragic for you. He goes, oh, my heart's broken, woe is me. Abraham's concern was with obeying God. That's all that you read the story of Abraham and that's, he just, the next morning, he goes. Jephthah should have known that God does not want human sacrifice since the law of Moses was so explicit about this and Jephthah lived in a time when they had the law of Moses, although he may not have been taught it very well. So his, his, he may have been a victim of the, the corruption of his society. But Abraham didn't even have the law of Moses and yet he knew that God would not let Isaac remain dead, as the author of Hebrews explains to us. Abraham would knew, Abraham knew by faith that God would somehow raise Isaac <coughs> back from de- the dead. Also, God was not involved in Jephthah's sacrifice because Jephthah was disobeying God by what he was doing, sacrificing his child, and, and by what he was not doing exchanging her for 10 pieces of silver. If he'd exchanged her for 10 pieces of silver, maybe God would have been involved in that. But, but in Abraham's case, God intervened in Abraham's sacrifice because Abraham was obeying him. And God did not actually desire Isaac's life. He didn't desire Jephthah's daughter's life either. God doesn't desire sacrifice what he wanted in Abraham's case was Abraham's obedience. And finally, Jephthah's family ends with his sacrifice. He doesn't have any family after that. But Abraham's sacrifice, which was potentially of Isaac, but ultimately of a ram provided by God, actually establishes his family. 
Now, as sort of an epilogue, it's worth noting how Jephthah's story ends. Some time after his defeat of the Ammonites and the sacrifice of his daughter, the Ephraimites, that is the members of the half-tribe of Ephraim, some of them, half of them lived in Gilead, half of them lived on the western side of Jordan. They, the western ones, came to Jephthah and accused him of excluding them from the battle with Ammon. You might wonder why people are whinging about not being in a battle, probably because they didn't get any loot. Jephthah's response was inflammatory and polarising, as seems to be the only way that Jephthah can actually interact with people, and that led to a war that ended with 42,000 Ephraimites, you thought America was bad, dead. This is the war where they killed everyone who mispronounced Shibboleth. Yep. So Jephthah killed a lot of Israel's enemies, but he also killed a lot of Israelites, including his only daughter. Not a great record for a leader. So tragically... This is not a judge that we can hold up as a hero. So what can we learn from this? You've got a suggestion here. Put the brain into here before opening the mouth and talking. Don't yeah. make promises. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I, I was sort of thinking in the context of when I, when I wrote this, I was thinking in the, the current context for us, so election, the week after the election. And I think one obvious lesson is that choosing a skilled leader, because the Israelites said, who can we choose to lead us in the battle? And Jephthah was good at leading people in the battle. He was a bandit leader. He was good at killing people. Um, but choosing a skilled leader with a bad character is a big mistake. Jephthah was good at killing people. Unfortunately, he wasn't so good at not killing people. And by the end of Israel, as I said before, he'd killed Israel's enemies, Israel's sons, and his only daughter. I don't think that's leadership. I think that's slaughter. That's not an intentional rhyme, by the way. Obviously, this lesson applies in the modern context as well. In in the modern workplace, for example, a company with a skilled leader of poor character is going to do lots of damage to anyone, to everyone. Think, say, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> it applies even on a small scale. If you, if you have a team leader who's skilled... Thanks, guys. If you have a team leader who's skilled but rude and short with people, they're going to be a worse team leader. They're going to have a worse result than one who's less skilled but more caring. This is not always popular in HR, but this is the way that the world works. In short, character trumps competence. The balance line, I think. Sorry? I think there's a balance. Well, character trumps competence. It doesn't negate competence. You still need somebody who's got some level of competence. Yeah. But character is more important. If you've got a if you've got to choose between somebody who's more skilled but bad character and somebody who's not as skilled but has skills but a good character. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Then a better leader is going to be the one with the good character. 
I think the biggest lesson that we can learn is that from this passage, and they're linked, these two are linked, is that God cares about individuals. So this is a painting of, of um, Jephthah's daughter, whose name we never learn. And that's why character matters, right? Because individuals matter. <laughs> no, I don't like Brenda. <laughs> Brenda's not a good name for it. Call her, well, whatever. Call her Jephthah's daughter. Now, I know that the story told here with tens of thousands of deaths is a strange way to reveal this idea that individuals matter, that, that human life matters. But think about it. There's one person in this story who's presented as noble and good. One person. Jephthah's innocent daughter. Yet her life is cut short because of Jephthah's obsession with killing people and his lack of trust in God and his lack of knowledge of God's word. In presenting this young woman in such a winsome way, the author of Judges is demonstrating how the ugliness of self-rule apart from God, self-rule of Israel apart from God, (coughs) destroys everything, even the most innocent and precious of people. You could say that Judges is sort of like an anti-war war movie. Lots of death, but a good message. <laughs> so as we go home today and as we wake up every day, I think we need to be asking ourselves, not What skills do I need to learn today? How competent am I? But rather, what is my character like? Am I valuing my competence over my character? Does it worry me more when people question my competence or my character? Am I bulldozing down the beautiful as well as the bad? Or do I love my neighbours more than my reputation? Is human life more precious to me than some abstract principle am I listening to God am I obeying him am I trusting him am I giving him am I giving God a chance to rescue people through my life am I more like Abraham or Jephthah let's pray Lord, it's so easy to put principle before people. We see it everywhere, in gun lobbies, in identity politics, in every form of human self-rule. It's only when we follow the voice of our loving shepherd, our Messiah, our Lord Jesus, that we can truly care for people more than we do for ideas or things. Help us to hear your voice and to obey it. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.